church this morning. Good to have you. Welcome to Sweet Communion this morning. Busy week coming up, and so we'll be doing a couple of things. Those who can meet, especially our men, on Tuesday, either during the day or in the evening, if you would replace ceiling tiles in the fellowship hall, so you're available for that. We need to do that on Tuesday, so see me afterwards if you uh, want to help with that. If nobody comes, I'll be coming after you to see you to help us out on the ceiling tiles. Wednesday, we will be setting up for our, um, for our weekend, so mainly Wednesday um, after, or after service, we'll be setting up our fellowship hall for our Christmas uh, fellowship. So we'll need your help with that. So if you can um, dress in appropriate gear to move tables and chairs and set that up, we'll be doing that on Wednesday. Then on uh, Thursday, we'll be completing our setup for in here for our play. Friday, of course, is the play. Saturday is the play. And then Saturday evening, we're going to need everybody. We're going to be uh, taking down our play setup and preparing for our Sunday f uh, fellowship for uh, Grace Partners. So Saturday evening, stick around after the play. After we greet, greet everybody, we'll put ourselves to work and uh, uh, get busy. So appreciate your, your help and volunteering in any of those efforts. We also need people who are willing to serve and to direct um, our, our guests as they come. I want to remind us we're hosting, so let's be good hosts as we uh, look to the needs of others. That means looking to others first. And I know we generally have this attitude, you know, I paid for my dinner, so I'm going to get mine. That's not the host attitude, <laughs> all right? Our host's attitude is to serve others, all right? Just like you would do or like you should do at your own Thanksgiving dinner, just because you paid for the turkey don't mean you carving it in first and elbowing in front of the line and getting in front of everybody else and getting the biggest piece and eating yours and everybody else take care of themselves. That's not how we do it. And so we're going to serve others first. We need a, a number of people who will help serve, who will help set up, we need people who are just going to go around and make sure that everybody's taken care of. I normally try and do that, so you follow my lead, and if you follow my lead, you'll probably be eating last with me, but that's okay. It's all right. That's how we serve others. So I look forward to you setting that example and uh, just asking where you can be of, of help uh, even before we get to Sunday. Ask, ask now so you can actually be helped. Uh, it's amazing. People come to me at the last minute. How can I help, Pastor? Well, you're too late. Most of us done already by then. Ask now, and then we can put you to help. Amen? All right. That's part of my preaching for today. All right. Today we look and we start our, our, our Christmas series, and we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 1 going to read parts of Matthew chapter 1 and just a little bit of Matthew chapter 2. So if you don't have your own Bible, then raise your hand or ushers will bring a Bible to you. Matthew chapter 1, we'll read verse 1 and then we'll read verse 18 through 25 and then chapter 2 verse 1 through 6. Matthew 1, 1, 18 and through 25 and 2, 1 through 6. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word.
Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Please remain standing with me as we engage in a time of prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet once again, to look at your word, to hear your word being proclaimed and preached. We pray, Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts so that your word finds right and fertile ground, that we might take your word in and we might allow it to minister to us and be effective in us. We thank you for this time of year, this season, where we remember the birth of Christ. Help us, Lord, to honor Christ as we celebrate Christmas this year, not to be so caught up in the world's activities, but to take time to, to worship you, take time to meditate, take time to read your word, to understand what you are doing, what your purpose is, and what your plan is, and why you have brought us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and made him to be born as a little baby in a stable, in a manger, in a humble environment. What are we to learn from this? Help us to reflect on you, your purpose and your plan, and to 
to um, be willing to live out that plan. Now, Lord, we pray for your people today. I pray today for my dad who's going to have a surgical procedure tomorrow. We pray, Lord, that you watch over and be with him. For my mom, as well as she um, just is by his side, that you would show your grace in, in their lives and allow both of their lives to be continue to be a testimony for you. Many loved ones, Lord, who don't know you, may they be impacted by the gospel as it's lived through them and through us. We just thank you for this time, Lord. We know uh, so many of the prayer requests has been listed on our email prayer list, and we just pray for each one of those individuals, praying, Lord, that your will will be done in their lives in such a way you're magnified and you're glorified and people come to trust in Christ. People see you in our lives and in our prayers and in our testimonies and they come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We thank you for this time and we just pray you'd move amongst us today and be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So please be seated. What a wonderful time and season and worthy of celebration Christmas is. Believers need to understand the significance of what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ, and what we are truly to celebrate during this year, during this season. The significance of the incarnation is what I've entitled our message today. The significance of the incarnation. Now, Saying it that way, I know, calls for some explanation. The incarnation simply means God becoming a man. God becoming a man. God taking on a human form. What is the significance of this? This really is the message of Christmas. And this gives us great cause to celebrate as believers. And so... We need to understand um, and embrace what the scripture says about what God has done and what it means to us right now, today. There's several terms in Matthew chapter 1 that we want to look at that tell us the scripture's view of who this Jesus is. Scripture is is. The Bible is the message, it is the story of Jesus as our Savior, as our Redeemer. I say our, I mean mankind, provided for mankind and for all who would trust in God's deliverance. Who is this deliverer? And what qualifies him to deliver us? And what does he deliver us from? And so, we need to see what the Bible says about this. And, and though that may not be new to, to many of us, it's something that we often rehearse because we celebrate what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to us, and we worship God because of it. It's interesting having come 
from our study in Colossians, I want to weave in uh, verses from Colossians because it's something that we've just gone over and something we should be familiar with. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13, we looked at some last week. We should look at some now. Colossians 1, 12, and 13 says this, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'll start at the last part of that verse, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, we recognize that God intended this Jesus, his beloved son, to be the one who brings to us redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Last week we, we talked about what redemption means. It means to be purchased from the slave market. We've been purchased with a price. And in, in Ephesians 1, 7, we said that that redemption came by Jesus' blood. It's his blood that provided the price for our redemption. It's that redemption that gives us forgiveness of our sins. And this all comes through Christ, and in fact, through Christ only. He reminds us in verse 13 that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. For this series of Christmas messages, I'd like to focus on that, the kingdom and the king. Or you could say it this way, the king and his kingdom. God has it says in this verse, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If his beloved son, who's Jesus Christ, has a kingdom, then he must then be a king. So we're going to look at the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Now, go with me now to Matthew chapter 1 and we want to see who is this Jesus? Who is this king? And later on, what type of kingdom does he have? And why should that bring rejoicing to our hearts? What should thrill us about this king and about his kingdom? Why should we be excited about what God has done that is to be celebrated during Christmas time? What is it about the incarnation that causes us to rejoice forevermore? What is it about the incarnation that brings the king into his kingdom and brings deliverance to all those in that kingdom? What is it about the incarnation of what happens during this time that we celebrate Christmas, what is it about this incarnation that allows us to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we'll look at verse 1 and then verse 18 through 25. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
That's an interesting way to start the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew says, look, I'm all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to start off talking about his history or his genealogy, where he came from. So he says this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants to link this Jesus Christ to David and the son of Abraham. Links him as the son of David and the son of Abraham. First of all, he lets us know that this Jesus Christ is a man who is a son. He is 100% a human being. Now, that's not all that he is, but he is all human. He's 100% human. And in his human lineage, he comes from David and from Abraham. He wants us to know that he is the son of man. He's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. But he doesn't want us to stop in our understanding there. And we get to verse 18. Now, I'm skipping over those other verses because there's a, not, a lot of genealogy in there, a lot of names in there. But the Bible includes that for a reason. You will see some very important uh, revelations there is that the, Jesus coming from his human side there's no such thing as a perfect human side that hasn't been impacted by sin outside of Jesus himself. But he came from a, 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 a human side that had a lot of questionable history. <laughs> you'll see harlots, you'll see prostitutes in that history. you see people who, who um, sinned and dishonored God in, in some way. In fact, all of those there were sinners. How does God bring about his son through a line like this? And what is he doing when he does that? What, what is the message that, that we are to get to that? We'll be looking at that as we go through. But Jesus Christ then is the son of man. In fact, the son of David and the son of Abraham. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 18 and on says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The Bible wants us to know how it is that Jesus came to birth. When his mother married, had been betrothed to Joseph. Notice it identifies Mary as mother. But Joseph doesn't say as father. Because he's not the father of Jesus. It says, when his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found, she was with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is identified clearly as, yes, the son of David, but also the son of God. Mary, it says, was found to be with child as a result of what the Holy Spirit had done, what he had performed in her. The miracle work that the Holy Spirit had done is that he had implanted seed in Mary without a physical human man being there. 
that in itself is a miracle. And what God uses this for is uniquely a miracle, um, effective in our salvation, in our lives today. Jesus, then, is the Son of God. He has a divine heritage, and he's the Son of men, or Son of man. He has a human heritage as well. He is uniquely 100% man, uniquely 100% God, and this is shown to us in his birth. Let's look at some of the terms that refer, or continue looking at some of the terms that refer to, to Jesus. We saw son of David, son of Abraham. In verse 20 it says, As he considered these things, speaking of Joseph, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, the angel is letting Joseph know that this child that Mary is going to give birth to is not, does not have a human father. Joseph was concerned about this. It says he was betrothed. In other words, he was engaged and promised to this woman, Mary, before they were married, before they had any sexual contact at all, she was found to be pregnant. Joseph pondered, what should he do? He thought certainly she had been unfaithful. And so he thought certainly that he must break off this betrothal uh, a promise and in essence breaking off the marriage that was to come and that required a divorce. So he was minded to separate and, and divorce from her. It says, it says that in verse 19. But while he thought on these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The next term that we see referring to this one who is to be born. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name, a Hebrew word, Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of that. The word Joshua means Jehovah saves. Jehovah delivers. We certainly see that in the Old Testament or in the person of Joshua that God led his people through Moses and it is Moses after Moses, the great leader, uh, uh, Joshua took place and he's the one that actually led them into the promised land. He was showing them it's not a man who leads them, but it's God who leads them and his name was Joshua. Jehovah saves. Jesus then is known as Jehovah saves. God the Father delivers his people. He says in verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. And then it says why? For he shall save his people from their sins. He will save his people. He will deliver his people. But it says uniquely he'll deliver them from their sins. Look at another term that he uses 
to describe Jesus in verse 23. We start at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now that's an important phrase. It's saying all this happened so it would fulfill exactly what God said would happen in the Old Testament. That's important. Jesus then is the, is the working out, the fulfillment of all God's promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is that fulfillment. And he points to one of those passages by saying this, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he interprets what that means, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus would mean, Jesus would be literally God amongst his people. God with us. Now, God had been with his people in several ways, but this is going to be a, a new experience. God was going to come then in human flesh and be right with and right besides his people. I want to contrast these two terms, Emmanuel and Jesus as the one who saves his people with a term in chapter 2 and show a contrast between the two. In, in chapter 2, let's read there in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who hath been born king of the Jews? Wise men refer to Jesus then as the one who is to be born king of the Jews. Where is he? This term shows what the Jews expected from this one who was promised from God. The Jews were looking for a leader. They were looking for a leader who would give them political victory. King of the Jews. Now I said I'm going to contrast that with this term of Jesus, of Joshua, or Jehovah saves, and Emmanuel, God with us, because we see two sets of expectations that seem to be different, and they, in fact, are different from each other. And they show the perspective of God and the perspective of men, or perspective of man. Notice in verse 2, it says, where is this one who is to be born king of the Jews? That's what the Jews expected, one who would come and be king. And in fact, that's what Herod related to, and that's why Herod was troubled. What, there's a new king? I thought I was king. That was a threat to Herod. And he said, now wait a minute, there's, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm going to have to do something about this. And so he looked at a new king coming as a threat to him because he knew what the Jews expected to say, look, if you guys have a king, then that means he's going to displace me. It shows us a difference in, in how we look at issues from what God looks at issues. What, what is man's greatest need? What is man's problem? What is he faced with? 
from man's perspective, we look at our social needs, relationships with others, whether that be other, other people in, 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 in terms of family, whether that's people in terms of, of friends and, and neighbors close by, whether that's co-workers or whether that's has some kind of international boundaries. It could be people from other nations and nations warring against nations. It could be neighborhoods warring against neighborhoods. There's a social issue. There's a social problem that man sees as, 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 very, as, as paramount. We, we see our physical need, our, our need for health and for safety, and, and that's very high in, 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 in our need. We see uh, our political need, our need for justice and for freedom. And, and, and we see that very high in, in, in terms of, of what we think is required, what kind of changes need to be made, what's wrong with things now. Uh, we see what's wrong socially is there, there's, there, there's conflict with each other. Physically, we see sickness and, and, and de death, and, and we see threats to our health in, in so many kinds of ways. We see issues politically of, of what's wrong with, with things that are going on now and, and, and mindsets and, and different ways of, of thinking and doing things. And we're divided as people. We're divided as a country because we see these are our issues. These are our problems. We even see our finances, our wealth and poverty as, as being major concerns that we have. If you don't think that's a major concern, look at people who, who invest and look how they give their lives to something or somebody who buys a lottery ticket and places their hope in that. Those who work to every day nine to five and, and, and feel trapped because they need the money and they have to keep working and without that job, without that money, they, they can't do the things that they want to do feel like just having some financial relief would free them. If I asked you today what you wanted for Christmas, you know, our society, our culture has changed now. Instead of giving me something, just give me a gift card, you know. And, and uh, better yet, give me a gift card that's just money itself. I can spend anywhere. You know, we, what we're saying in that is the, the, the solution to my problem is resolved financially. I'm better off, I'm, I'm well off if I had these things secure. And so man's perspective is that his issue, his problem is outside of himself. And if he could just get everything else right and everybody else right, he'd be just fine. Man's particular view of that. And so when we see the Jews and their expectation of what, how God was going to send them a deliverer, they, they, they latched on to this idea that this deliverer is going to be king and going to be in control and is going to be able to take care of those people who oppress them physically, take care of their political issues that do shape their financial issues, that, that, that flavor their, their, their standard of living. They wanted all that to be right, all that to change. But God's perspective is drastically different. And he says, I'm sending a deliverer whose name is Jesus, whose name is Joshua, whose name is Jehovah saves, and when he comes, he's going to deliver the people, but he's going to deliver them first and foremost 
from their sin. In that statement, God makes a declaration that man's key issue is not social, or is not primarily social. Actually, his key issue is, but that, that, is, that, that, that is not the, 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 the root of it. It's social, political, physical, or financial. His key issue, the root behind all of those issues, is sin. God says to mankind, you need a deliverer who will deal with your root problem and actually conquer it. Not just a deliverer who can make you more secure, safety-wise, or health-wise from enemies who threaten you. Not just a deliverer who can make you more financially stable or well, but one who will deal with your sin who will then impact all of those other areas. It's not that God ignores our, our wealth or our health or our social interaction or our well-being in terms of how we relate to others and within a nation. Not that God ignores any of that. He has all of that in mind. In fact, his deliverance is going to encompass all of that by dealing, first of all, with sin. So when we talk about the king and his kingdom, we're going to see that he comes in and he delivers us from the domain of darkness and he transfers us into the kingdom of his dear son, his beloved son, because that's the way God impacts all that is wrong with us. And he, what he does is he establishes, first of all, starting with that sin within us. And, and, and he delivers us, he forgives us of our sin, he provides redemption. We saw in Colossians 1, verse 12 and 13, he provides forgiveness from sin, redemption that will deliver us. In other words, redemption is purchasing us off the slave market of sin. He deals with what has a hooked on the sin. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. You see, if, if, if a person is hooked on a drug, you can come and snatch that drug away from them, right? You can make that drug illegal, right? You can make it hard to get, but you haven't solved their problem. They still want that drug. And they're going to do everything they can to get that drug because they have equated that drug to their happiness, to their well-being. It is all they need. That drug, in fact, has become their God. And they would do everything to get it so that it might deliver them. What God does is he transferred us from the domain of darkness. He takes us, not just taking the drug away, he deals with our inward desire. That we no longer see that drug as our all in all. Anything else, but we see him as our all in all. He changes our focus now to be Focus not on the outward something else, uh, some idol, which that drug is and anything else is, but he changes the focus on him. That's what sin has done. It, it has perverted our desire system and has destroyed us. Jesus conquers that by changing our heart. And then he conquers 
who, who's been pulling those heartstrings? Satan himself, the domain of darkness. He gets victory over Satan himself so that Satan no longer has this tool of death to, to point at us and to, to use against us so that he might sway and move us and, 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 and uh, uh, scare us and, and uh, control us in so many ways. So God says man's primary problem is not one outward primarily, but one inward, which is sin. His Savior, his deliverer, will deliver his people from sin. Continuing in Matthew chapter 2, look at another reference to Jesus. In verse 4, we can start at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And the assembling and, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Here's another term, Christ, that refers to Jesus. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. The Hebrew word is the word that we get, we get the word Messiah from. So this was, in fact, a title. And the word Messiah meant anointed one from God. Anointed one from God. He was the anointed one. He was to be the anointed one who would righteously rule God's people. This title, the Christ then, is this one who God had ordained and had anointed to be the provider for God's people who would rule God's people, righteously rule God's people. Israel was sick and tired of wicked leaders, whether they came from their own or from the time they went into captivity, those rulers over them. And they knew that they needed a righteous ruler, one who would bring justice. God had appointed that this one, this Messiah, this Christ would come and he would righteously rule his people. Christ is here today as a righteous ruler. Either our lives are going to be ruled by the Lord, Christ, or they're going to be ruled by us and thus be prone to all types of chaos because when we think we're ruling them, we're not really ruling. Satan is pulling the strings himself. So really, they're either ruled by God or they're ruled by Satan. Satan likes to give us a little slack in our strings so we can think we're doing our own thing. But either we're being ruled by God or we're being ruled by Satan. God says, I'm going to deliver my people and bring to them a righteous one, one who is anointed, who is sent from me with my approval and my promise that he's going to do exactly what I've sent him to do. Another term comes up as we continue in, in verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now look, Herod doesn't know anything about this, so he goes to the people who should know. 
to the people of Israel and to the spiritual leaders of Israel. It says in verse 4, he was assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asked them, where is this Christ, this, this one you guys call from your sacred writings, the Old Testament, that God has promised to you, where is he supposed to be born at? And they said, well, in Bethlehem. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Did, did they make that up themselves? No. It says, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now here we get the idea of a ruler, a righteous one in charge, but this righteous one in charge is going to shepherd God's people. Shepherd is one who's to protect the sheep, one who is to feed the sheep, and one who is to lead the sheep. Old Testament prophets had a lot to say about shepherds. David himself was a shepherd. And God had charged the shepherds, is it in Ezekiel 34, I believe, who, where he, he, he talks to the shepherds and condemns those for not being righteous shepherds. The word of God says God is going to send one who's going to be a shepherd over his people. When you think about a shepherd, it's good to be a sheep when you have a good shepherd. One who will righteously rule, who will give of his own life to protect the sheep, to provide for the sheep, and to direct the sheep. David wrote the psalm, psalm the great psalm, Psalm 23, of how he as a shepherd would care for his sheep. And it was a picture of God caring for his own people. God was sending that type of deliverer. A shepherd loved the sheep and would stake his own life for the sake of of the sheep. This is the kind of person the Old Testament said that God would send as a ruler, a shepherder, one who would shepherd his people. But how is Jesus all of this? And how does he fulfill this? That's where the incarnation comes in, where God becomes a man. God doesn't just simply do this remotely from heaven. God doesn't just press a button or just speak and make something happen. What he does is he gets involved. It's like as if a hands-on approach is what he does. And so he sends his son, God the Son, into the world. And we see what he does when he do that. Not when he does that. Well, I, want to, I want us to look then at, at some scripture that I think will help us understand this. This is in Hebrews now. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. I answer this question why the incarnation? Why does God become man? Why does he do it? He does this, God does this to fulfill his plan to provide man forgiveness 
and to deliver man from sin. He does this to fulfill this plan to provide man's forgiveness and to deliver man from sin. How does he do this? How is God become a man working for man's forgiveness? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him, this is Jesus, in fact it says this later on in the verse, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Earlier in this same chapter of Hebrews he begins to say that God had put all of his creation into man's hand and given man's responsibility and actually given him rule over all of his creation. And we, we understand from Genesis how that was done, but then we kind of shake our head and we say, it doesn't look like that now. It doesn't look like we're ruling over God's creation now. In fact, it looks like we're kind of subjected to it. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 2. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It says what God has done, and we see this in Genesis, God put everything in subjection under his feet. But then I like what the, what the writer says, he kind of questions, is that what we see now? Look at, look, the, look at the rest of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's what it means. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He says God's plan to put his creation in subjection to man, make man ruler of all that creation has not worked out so well. That's what he's saying. It has, we haven't seen it yet. Why haven't we seen it? Because man hasn't fulfilled that. God is going to bring a man who will actually fulfill what he has promised would be fulfilled. He's going to bring, here it is, he's going to bring a man to be a real man and do what God called him to do that sinful man couldn't accomplish. Adam couldn't do it because of his sin. Jesus, as the second Adam, comes in and accomplishes God's purpose as a man that Adam could not do. In other words, he's going to rule over all of God's creation as God intended it to be. Adam couldn't fulfill that. You and I are not fulfilling that. Jesus is going to fulfill that for us. And how does he do that? He first becomes a man. Read that again. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What a powerful verse. It says what we see is Jesus. When, man, when mankind failed to be what God intended them to be because of their fall and sin, God brought a new Adam, a new man, to fulfill what Adam should have fulfilled. That new man is Jesus. It says he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's a weird statement. Because of suffering and death. I would think he's crowned with glory and honor because, you know, because he's so great and powerful and majestic. But it says, no, he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He suffered on the cross, and because of that, God poured out glory on him because he accomplished exactly what God intended for him to accomplish. How did he do that? Let's see. This is how he did that. It says later on in verse 9, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, God intended him to experience, that's what taste means, experience death in the place of everyone else. Keep going now. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, <clears throat> to, excuse me, that's God. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. But he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. In this, in this taking on a human body, Jesus is able to call me and you his brothers. And he goes on to say, let's skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying God made this Jesus a man so that he could be like those he was going to be delivered, relate to them and be their brothers, and so that he through his death, could destroy the one who has the power over death, that is Satan. And through that, deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's all of us as sinners. We were subject to lifelong slavery under Satan. And it's Jesus who delivers us from that by his death. Well, how does he die? He becomes a man so that he could die, so that he could have this great victory over Satan. I love verse 17. It kind of wraps it up. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
So back in Matthew 1.21, when it says that this Jesus, this Joshua, this Jehovah saves would be his name because he will save the people from their sins. He's saying this is how Jesus did. This is how God did it through Jesus. He made Jesus to be a human being. He's made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, we're going to need to spend some time digesting that, so in the next couple of weeks we'll, we'll talk more about that. But let's just broadly go over what that means. It says he, he become a merciful and faithful high priest. What is a high priest? A priest was one who represented God to the people and represented the people to God. In other words, he took the people and he represented those people as he stood before God and he offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. He represented God as he stood before the people as he offered forgiveness for their sin. He represented, he communicated between the two. Jesus then becomes the perfect high priest, the go-between, because as a human, as a man, he relates to the people and their sin, even though he is without sin. He's 100% human, so he, he, he agonizes, he, he, he sympathizes, and he empathizes with the shortcomings and the failures and the limitations and the sins of his brothers. And he brings to God, not excuses, not anything else. He brings his own sacrifice, himself as the perfect sacrifice to God who accepts that sacrifice. The key word in accepting that is this word propitiation. It says he is the propitiation. That means the acceptable, propitiation means that which God accepts. The only thing that God accepts as payment for our sins. Now, when you go to pay off a debt, I went to get my, my truck fixed this, this week, and I was a little bit surprised. I'm always surprised when you go in and ask them what's wrong, and they tell you how much it's going to cost. You know, it's always double to me what I think it's going to be. <laughs> and so the guy was writing up my order. I said, how much is it going to cost? He said, about a million dollars. He said, but that's okay. You can make payments. I said, Really? You accept my payments. <laughs> I'll be glad to do that for a million dollars. You accept my payments. I'll come in and sweep the floor every week. I'll come in and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But the fact is, they wouldn't accept that. No way. They want cash right now, today. And if I don't have cash right now, today, guess what? That truck will stay in there until I get cash. I went to one place and, and had some work done, and, and I noticed this car was, was, was parked outside. A couple weeks later, I went out there, and the car kind of had like a flat tire. It was still there. That's guy, well, what's that car? That's one of the customer's cars. <laughs> he couldn't pay. He couldn't pay. What happened? He couldn't pay, so the car stayed there. Even the car was not propitiation. It was not an acceptable payment for that debt. There's one acceptable payment to that businessman, that's cash. 
There's an acceptable payment to God, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else would do. God, I'll do better this time. I'm going to stop sinning for real now. That's not acceptable payment. God, after, after you do me right, I'm going to get five more people to come and trust you. That's not acceptable payment to God. There's one acceptable payment to God. It's the sacrifice. It's the blood of his own son. So it says Jesus becomes this perfect and one and only payment that God would accept. Read it again. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So it's this incarnation when Jesus, God the Son, becomes flesh, takes on a human body. He goes to the cross, a perfect sinless sacrifice on our behalf and offers to God the one payment that he would accept for my sin and for your sin. Jesus is a perfect gift of God to us, to himself, for our sin. Not only does he pay for our sin, here's a good thing. He doesn't just pay for our sin and leave us alone. He says, I, 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 I pay for your sin and I'm bringing you into the kingdom of my dear son. So we see how great the king is and why why as a king he became a human being like a peasant like us and paid for other peasants sins he welcomes us to come and rejoice in his kingdom where we'll live eternally not only is our sin paid for but we have eternal life guaranteed in a kingdom reserved by the Lord Jesus Christ this is reason for celebrating Christmas. This is reason for rejoicing over what God brings to us because God stepped out of heaven. God the Son became a human being, went on a cross, paid for our sin, a payment that was acceptable to God. And I am therefore now, he is by faith in Christ, I, I have forgiveness of sins and I have eternal life. He is now my brother, and I am his, and I'm linked together with him. Father, we pray and thank you today for what you have done for us. What is it you require of us, or what should be happening in our lives if we rightly appreciate who Christ is and what he's done, this incarnation, this him becoming a human being. Lord, we recognize that we ought to learn more about Christ. We ought to read our Bible. We ought to be listening to your word as it's taught and trying to understand more and more this fullness of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Lord, we know that as we learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will long for him. We'll understand that 
man's solutions don't really remedy anything, but that your, your son is our real solution. We want to learn more about his redemption, his righteous rule, his healing, his blessing. We want to trust him more actively. Want to live in obedience and humble submission to him. Want to give ourselves to him to serve him in practical ways. Want to serve him by taking your word out, this gospel message, by living it out in front of others by being more and more like Christ in front of others, so they might be able to see Christ. Just as he became flesh, became a human being for our sake and suffered because of it, may we become more like him in front of others, even if it causes us suffering, so that they might see God. Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to keep that in mind as we serve Christ. Then, Lord, we pray this will lead to worship of Christ. We submit ourselves as we obey, as we long for Christ, as we learn more about him, as we trust him. All this will drive us and cultivate in, in us worshiping him. Adoring him. Appreciating him. Reflecting on him. Meditating on who he is, what he's done, what it means to us. Giving praise and glory to him for what he is doing right now. And thinking about it we go throughout our, our daily tasks. May you bring us to worship. I pray this now in Jesus' name.